to open them to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this text in two parts. This is one of those passages of scriptures that probably most of you are familiar with, and it stands as one of those sweet praises to our Lord that many of us know and um, I I hope serves as um, as a fuel to your worship and your love for your Savior. Um, having said that, it's always frustrating for me when I come to texts that I love so much and I hold in such a high regard and are so effective in my life, I always feel very inadequate at doing justice to what the Scripture has. It's so rich, and it's so encouraging and comforting and leads us to such effective and thoughtful considerations of our Lord. I don't think any man this side of heaven could do it justice. I trust that the Lord will encourage you this morning as we look in Philippians 2. Let me set the stage for you, and then we'll pray. This text is not in isolation. In fact, if you're to look at the whole entire context, go back to chapter 1, verse 27. As you look at that, the, the call of Scripture is that each of us are commanded to live a life that's worthy, that is fitting, um, it, it, it sits well with and, and is in accord with what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And the reality that we've all been legally, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we've been legally made citizens of God's heaven, where our eternal destiny lies, where Christ in Matthew tells us to lay up treasures, should shape the way we live in this life, that we live as foreigners now in this earth, for this earth, and in regard to this earth, because we are citizens of heaven. And so we live as though heaven is truly our home because it is truly our home. We live as though heaven holds what is precious and dear because heaven, in fact, is where our treasure is laid up. And so in Philippians chapter 1, he calls us to a lifestyle that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, or as chapter 3 says, as citizens of heaven. And then he begins to explain how it leads the church to a deep, unshakable unity together despite pressures and sorrows and costs and affliction. And Paul, even thinking of himself as an example, I think somewhat, reminds us that he's writing this from where? He's in prison. And he's suffering. And even as he suffers at the hands of some of the Christians in the community, he is thankful for God's ministry to the community through them, even though their ministry is tainted or polluted with Um, bad agendas and false motives. And then you come to chapter 2, verse 1. He calls upon us to understand our position in the gospel so that, verse 2, we could be unified, verse 3, by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility we are to consider others as superior or more important than ourselves and to serve their interests rather than our own interests, verse 4 says. And that leads us to verse 5 where he says this, let this mind or have this mind among yourselves which is in Christ Jesus. The point is we are to have the same mindset or attitude that Christ Jesus himself has had and examples for us in his ministry to us. 
If you're reading the ESV, I think it makes verse 5 a little bit convoluted, but the essential point is a command. Have the mind of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to consider the mind of Christ. The application is that you and I must have it. But part of the application should be we just worship our Lord. When you see his grace and his humility, when you see the effectiveness of his response to sin and to his Father's command, we should just stop and consider our incredible Savior. So my prayer for you this morning is that a contemplation of your Savior will lead to reproducing his character in you. I think that's the goal of the text. So let's pray towards that end, and then we'll get into verse 5 and following. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that within its pages, almost as though beholding in a mirror, we say the beauty and the glory and the majesty of our Savior. And it is your agenda through the grace of the Holy Spirit that he would have his work in our hearts as he reshapes us so that we look like Christ, who we behold in the Scripture. So, Father, we pray for eyes that would see the beauty of Christ. We ask for the Spirit's gracious work in our hearts to uh, take the chisel of conviction and break off those pieces of our life where pride and arrogance and conceit and selfish ambition might deform us from the beauty of Christ. And so that through his work, we are, we are fashioned to be more like our Savior in our thinking so that our lives bring glory to him as he reproduces himself through us to the community around us. Lord, we pray that your son might be honored by the contemplation of this theology in this text that reveals to us the humility of the most glorious Savior, our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Is for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen. So just looking again at the command proper, here's this command, have the mind of Christ. Or just to back up a little bit and ask maybe why this text is so significant. I want you to imagine multiple scenarios that are very realistic within a church like ours, or maybe even in just a broader Christian community. Imagine a young couple is nearing that ideal time in their life where they're looking forward to marriage, and you realize that there's a lot of conflict in the relationship. So the young man or woman comes to you and says, what should I do? I'm engaged. I've been engaged for a couple months now. We're looking forward to getting married, but we're kind of fighting a lot. What should we do? I'm sure none of you has ever been asked that question. Uh, Maybe some of you are like, well, run. I don't think that's always the right advice. Or how about this? Paul is writing to a church that's under affliction. They're being pressured there's clearly poverty when you get to chapter 4. It's, it's evident that people are very poor in some uh, of the homes of the church. Uh, Paul is in prison. He's saying, you're suffering the same thing I've suffered. So maybe some of them are being threatened with imprisonment and confinement in jail. What, what, what encouragement would you give a church that's beginning to fracture and fight as suffering and pressure from the outside hits them? What would you tell a man beyond just stop? who is constantly angry and yelling at his children? Or how would you counsel a mother whose work and professional life is 
causing her to be checking out of the home. She's coming and returning back to her children and her husband drained and unable to give them either grace or care because she is so exhausted from her labors. What causes us to be generous again and again and again to the thankless man who always needs more money because he just never gets a good job and still respond with kindness when he asks for our money that we work hard for? What stirs the Christian heart to generosity? I think often our advice is something like this. We tell the couple struggling the profound words of stop fighting or leave the relationship. We look for churches where there already is unity. Of course, it might not dawn on us that we might be the problem for dis or the cause for disunity. We tell the dad to stop being angry. We tell the mom to quit her job. We tell the thankless man to get a better job and to start saying thank you when people give him money. I would suggest to you that these are illegitimate solutions. They might be good counsel in some ways, but they're actually not a solution. Let me just simply say it this way. Your environment has never once caused you to sin. And so counseling the couple to quit, counseling the man to simply change, calling on the mom to quit her job, which she may need to quit, but that is actually not the problem. The problem is actually a character problem. If she's graceless and unkind to her children when she gets home, exhaustion is not an excuse. It's just revealed a character problem. We often call upon people to change their situation, change their setting, and we think that that is a pathway to holiness. In fact, it is not. And that is not how Scripture addresses the issue of disunity within the church. There is suffering. There is hardship. He doesn't say leave Philippi and go to a community that loves Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, keep your faith quiet so no one in the community persecutes you. He doesn't say sing quieter. He doesn't say, hey, shape your message so that the community around you loves Jesus and sees how open and warm he is to a culture that hates him. In fact, the call is to make sure that we respond like Jesus. And you notice he initially says in verse 5, have the mindset of Christ. If you were to go back and read all of chapter 1, you'd see a couple different times he calls upon our thinking to be shaped. Because how we think produces how we live. And again, when he says thinking, he's not merely just thinking our, our cognition. He's thinking our feelings and responses and our affections and values. He's thinking of that whole internal person that moves us and steers our attitudes, responses, and decisions in life. He's talking about the whole person on the inside. That, he says in verse 5, must reflect Christ. I want to start in verse 6 then, building that foundation of what Christ is like. What is the attitude he's after? Well, if you look in, in verse 6 with me, he says, Who though, so speaking of Jesus Christ, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, considering our theology of who Jesus Christ is, let's just begin with this thought. He is the glorious God of this universe. You might have missed it. But right there at the end of the verse, speaking of Jesus Christ's attitude, he ends with this thought, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So that is his status. He is equal with 
God. And it's not saying he is the Father. It's saying that in terms of superiority of being, in terms of um, attributes and qualities, or maybe we'd say his divine nature, he is God. We would have this idea of human beings being created equal. It is not to say we're all the same height or color or have, you know, the same hair. I'm seeing different types of hair and different amounts of hair. That's not a matter of equality. Equality is speaking to the nature of what it means to be human, and Jesus Christ is God. And I just want to make a point here, because in, in this theological discussion of Jesus Christ, notice that in verse 5 he says, have the mind of Christ who is equal with God. Sometimes in theology we are very careful to call the Son God and Jesus human to kind of differentiate and clarify who we're speaking about. I think this text reminds us that they are one person. And so if at some point I flag you by calling Jesus Christ God, I want you to just remember that's what Paul does. That's what Scripture does. And I'm not trying to blend or blur the two uh, natures of Christ here. I'm trying to just speak simply and not always have to give a caveat that I'm not trying to ignore the differences between his human nature and divine nature. Okay, that aside, I want to get back to verse 6 who though he was in the form of God. This speaks to how Jesus Christ, prior to the incarnation, as the Son of God, is God of gods. He is in the very morphe form, speaks to uh, the fact that he is not merely appearing. We would almost use form that way, as an appearance maybe, but that he is God himself. His attitude about his divine Nature and the privileges and the freedoms it gives him in verse 6 is he did not count equality with God a thing to be what? It says grasped. It's actually a word sometimes used for robbery. That is, he did not consider his joys and glories and freedoms and privileges that accumulate to him because of his divine nature as something to be held with greedy, sticky fingers like a thief who sees your stuff and wants it to be his. We might use something like the phrase open-handed to speak of the reverse attitude of someone who's grasping. So someone who's open-handed is generous. They're giving away the things that they have. And that's the picture of Jesus Christ here. His, his divine privileges, his glory in heaven, his freedom of life, his absolute total independence of all the things that are created. All of these things are, are his by right. I'll just tease that out a little bit because I realize like five of you have like master's level education in theology and the rest of us are like, okay, yeah, God's free. And it doesn't hit us what those types of phrases mean. For instance, when we talk about God and his independence, Make it say this, God is eternally happy and totally independent and nothing and no one are required to not only make him happy or are, are necessary for his existence. You, you might think of yourself as an independent agent, that you're not dependent on stuff. I just want to tease this out with you for a second. I want you to stop needing air. 
I think you're pretty dependent on it. Let's see how long you last. Maybe just give up water and go a little longer. I think you're pretty dependent on that. Or how about just give up some heat and drop down to, what is it, negative 273 degrees Celsius? I don't think you're going to survive very long. You see, you need things granted to you that are not part of you. And if they're not supplied to you, your dependence becomes very, very evident. You don't have them, and you depend on them, you die. The Son of God is dependent on nothing and no one. He does not need anyone in all of creation to sing his praises for him to think, this is a good day. He does not need you to serve him. He does not need you to pray to him. It is not as though in some pagan fashion as we pray to God, he's empowered to do something for us. He does not need anything. That is who God is. God was not lonely in heaven without you. It is blasphemous to say so. And songs that hint at God wanting heaven with you, and that's why he saved you, imply a dependence on God that is heresy. He's free. He's not merely independent. He's free. This means that God can do everything he wants to do. And I'm so glad his wanter is good. If you could do everything you wanted to do, you'd probably be a horrible person. Can you imagine a society without even just the societal pressure to not do dumb things, without laws and governance and consequences and penalties and family and grandma smacking your elbow when you put them on the table? We have all sorts of pressures on us to be what we should be. God is an absolute free agent, does all that he does in accord with his nature because he's free to do it, which means... God did not save anyone because he should in the sense of someone else telling him what to do. God is not obligated to save anyone. In fact, God was not only not obligated to save anyone, he was not obligated to create anyone, he was not obligated to tell anyone about Jesus. He was not obligated to send his son to die for sinners. He was not constricted by anyone to accomplish redemption. That is the most breathtaking grace of God. That with no pressure on him, no person forcing him, and no necessity to save us, he saves us. And so the, the, the backwards thought that would somehow say God is on the hook for getting the gospel to some random person who's never heard of him implies God is not free, but in fact bound by my expectations of what it means for him to be good. God is free to do as he wills, and all that he wills is good. And just because you can think of a phrase that somehow you think obligates God to act according to your definition of good just reveals a flaw in your definition, not a flaw in our God. He is free and independent. This is who Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God is. Not merely that. He is glorious. In fact, I, I just want to suggest to you a thought that this morning I think is evident. 
God's glory is revealed in his attributes and in his character and how he, how he lives out his attributes. I think this text teaches us God is humble. I don't think I've heard that very often in my life. Have you ever thought God is humble? I think it's a byproduct of his love. That is, the attribute of love causes God in his freedom to act in humility towards the creature. I think Jesus Christ reveals to us it is the character of God to be humble, which means that for you and for me, when the Apostle Paul, Scripture right here, tells us to to have the attitude of humility, to have the attitude of Christ, to be people that interact with others in humbleness, it's calling us to nothing more than an application of divine love. That I reproduce God's love towards others by being humble, as opposed to maybe a standard definition of humility or a standard thought of humility is like uh, recognizing all my uh, faults and failures and weaknesses. God doesn't have any. Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God, did not sit up in heaven and say, boy, I'm just no good at this thing. I'm not a very good being. I... I just better do something else. And he didn't have any self-deprecating, self-critical thoughts because there's nothing to be critical of. He's the Son of God. So if you're sitting in your chair thinking, you know, I just need to be humble and I need to recognize all the ways I'm a weak, flawed, failure, that's not actually how we pursue humility. Not if it's a characteristic of the Son of God who is perfect. I want to I add two more considerations that I think lead us to understanding and holding uh, the thought about humility correctly here. Jesus Christ is the ruler of all creation. Because we're considering the glory of the Son of God. He is the ruler of all of creation. I could, could say something like, he's the ruler of all the universe. No matter how small and microscopic, no matter how large and cosmic, Jesus Christ is the king of creation. Or as Hebrews says, he sustains it all by his powerful word. So consider the Son of God in eternity past. As Job cites statements something like this, he sends the course of lightning on its path. He binds the constellations. Like, so I think it's Orion, like he has a belt on. That's in Job. He holds back the storehouses of waters. He sends forth the, 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 the winter snows. He waters the plants in the desert. He feeds the ostrich. That's Jesus. And Paul will tell us Jesus is also a baby who needed to be fed. He is the King, the Lord of glory. This morning we sang a song Behold our God, who has numbered every grain of sand. Jesus knows the number. He didn't just number them. He made them. 
That sounds tedious. No, he didn't. Make them the way I'd have to make them. I'd have to take a rock and a hammer and break down the rock into little silica, little grains. Jesus spoke, and it existed. Our Savior is the king of the universe, and he rules it with glory and goodness. He is free, he is independent, and he is the author of life. John says that he has life in himself. John says in John 11 that he is the resurrection and the life. 1 John 5.20 reminds us that he is the true God and in him is eternal life. I think that's significant because it means something like this. Jesus Christ as the eternal son of God is unkillable. Like if, if we were to set out on a hundred different ways to kill a human being, we could get the list really fast. I already listed a few. Take away the heat in your body. You freeze. You're a little human-sickle. Right? Take away your breath in your lungs. You last about five minutes in your corpse. Take away your water. You're dried up husk. Like we just go in on a hundred different ways to kill a human. How do you kill God? You cannot because you would have to deprive him of something he needs. And he needs nothing from us. There is nothing you could take away from the Son of God by which you would kill him. Because you cannot go into the storehouse of God's life and take away anything from him. He is life. Theologically, The apostle assumes we get that stuff. So in verse 6, when he says, although he was in the form of God, so in eternity past, the preexistent son of God, although he was in the form of God, did not consider all of these types of external joys of being the son something to be held in a seizing Sticky-fingered grasp that typifies the thief. He was not like that. Instead, verse 7 says, but he emptied himself. He opened his hands. And he did not give away his deity, just to be clear. So before we move on to how Jesus Christ humbles himself, which is how some people, I think, correctly interpret that word emptied and as emptied you could almost translate it humble i don't think we should translate it humble uh humble the right translation is emptied but paul's point is he humbled himself by divesting himself of the privileges that pertain to deity in order to accomplish humility by addition jesus christ is god he is therefore glorious, dwelling in unapproachable light in eternity past. He is the king over all of his creation, governing it as ruler, so that both the microscopic and the cosmic are governed with the infinite ease and perfection of divine power. He is required to serve no person nor give glory to another. There is no being in all of creation that is equal to or superior to Jesus Christ, who is God. He is fully within his rights to save no one at all. It is not a reproach against God that there may be some place, some person, or some pitiable condition of a soul that will suffer forever under God's punishment. 
It is God's right to save none. And so it is breathtaking grace and the most divine sweetness that any person in all of creation will ever be rescued from his or her sin. This is most amazing grace, that God would save any of us at all. For in order to do so, God humbled himself. The king of glory served you for your good because he is good. Do not accuse him in your heart or question his goodness. Have you not read this morning, the son of God did not consider his equality something to be held on to, but he humbled himself so that you might be saved. God is unable to be killed. He cannot die. He cannot be He cannot have any suffering imposed upon him. No one can lay a finger upon God to do him harm. No one can go into the storehouse of God's joy and take it away. God humbled himself and became human so that he could be harmed, stricken, and beaten for our sake. The unkillable God has been killed, tasted death, Hebrews says, for us. As God, he's unable to die. As humans, he can die for humans. And so this passage reminds us that he entered into our world, became human, became an earthling, so that the rest of humanity throughout this whole earth could be redeemed by running to Christ and embracing him in saving faith. So what exactly did this humility entail? I want you to look at the text. I want to point out uh, the, the framework. I think you'll see fairly clearly in the text, and then I want to Walk through it fairly quickly. Verse 7. He emptied himself, and if you're kind of counting here, he emptied himself by what? Taking the form of a servant. So we have service. By being born in the likeness of men, he became human. If you look down into verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself. He continues on by becoming obedient, that's number four, and verse five is to the point of death. So I think you see the kind of the, the sequence. They're, they're interrelated. They're, they're not totally independent thoughts, right? That, that humility and slavery and the Son of God becoming human all are part of humility or an expression of it. But I think we can see uh, that the Scripture is laying out for us at least five kind of um, considerations for us this morning. Let's just start with that, that first thought. Jesus Christ took upon himself the form of a servant. If you were to go back and read verse 1, the Apostle Paul starts out with this initial introduction. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Same exact Greek word. I think it's better translated slave. I think because of cultural baggage, the ESV doesn't want to red flag us with the type of slavery we had in America. But, but think of someone who has lost the freedom and independence. Do you remember a few minutes ago we were talking about the freedom and the independence of the Son of God? And Jesus Christ is a slave now. And Paul and Timothy say, and we are slaves too. You see, Jesus Christ is the citizen of heaven. And so when the Apostle Paul says we should walk worthy of our citizenship, he looks to the capital C, citizen of heaven, who, whose ethos and attributes give for us 
an imperative. We must be like our king. He serves. He's a slave. Jesus came not to be served, the gospel say, but to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah speaks for some 15 or so chapters about God's Caleb, we got to reteach Isaiah. <laughs> servant. Right? right? God's suffering servant, we might say, of Isaiah 53, where, where Yahweh sends his servant who suffers for people. Maybe you remember this verse. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him. That him is his servant. And for chapters, Isaiah lays out how God's servant rescues and redeems Israel. And then in chapter 53, he doesn't just redeem Israel. He does so by taking their iniquities and bearing the cost and the suffering for them so that many might be made righteous. Jesus Christ is a servant. Can I just in a brief application before moving on to the second point. I think a lot of us think we are servants. You know, kind of like a junior hire who's learning to play sports, imagines in his own mind as he considers the game to come that he is going to be like LeBron James. <clears throat> Two things I am sure of. He thinks he is, and he's not. I think some of us may think we are servants, and we don't actually do service. A slave acts and serves and works and labors for another. Like so, as you work to get money for yourself, you're an employee, not a slave. But when you work for the benefit of another, for the income of another, for the aid of another, for the support of another, that's what a servant does. Some of us just sit on the couch and think we are. <laughs> we're the junior high boy, imagining we're LeBron James. It's just in your imagination. Jesus Christ served. He became. And, and just as a theological point, notice this. As the Son of God in eternity passed, he did not stop being God, but took something to himself. Right? He, he added to himself. He, he didn't stop. Like, maybe just a, a bad metaphor in the sense that it's the opposite. I stopped being single when I got married. I, I could not contain or, or, or sustain both positions. I could not both be single and married. Right? Like, you guys with me? This is not hard logic. So, so here's, here's the Son of God, and we would think perhaps that like that logic, if, if he becomes a slave who's human, that he stops being God. But the text is very, very careful. Look again at this passage with, with me. He did not consider his divine goodnesses and joys and, and benefits and rewards as something to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
That same word for form would indicate that he was not pretending to be a servant. He actually is, in essence, a slave. But he added this. I would imagine that if any of you were to cover yourself in manure, that you would feel less good about yourself. Not because you've lost anything, but by addition, you feel worse. Jesus Christ added to himself his humanity, and not merely just a glorious human condition, but a slave. Second, the incarnation, or he became human, is, is the way we look in this text. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So right there he repeats twice that Jesus Christ took upon himself that humanity that caused the glorious Son of God by addition to experience the shame of being one of us. I mean, this is the demotion of demotions. Well, why did Jesus Christ become human? Hopefully understanding the gospel as most of you do. You recognize that Jesus Christ, by becoming human, shares with us a unity. Angels cannot experience this. I know we don't think about it this way, but we are all one family. And I don't mean that in some like kumbaya, let's hold hands and, and let's like get along. I mean by the fact that we all share a father and mother named Adam and Eve. We are united together as, as, a, as, a, as a unit. I would use the word solidarity, but people make fun of me for using words like that. So I won't say that we're a solidarity. Instead, I'll say we're a unity. We're like, we're like Team Adam. And Jesus Christ enters into our unity as one of us by being born through Mary in the virgin birth. He joins Adam's team. Now, here's the majesty of that. Hebrews 2. Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shares in their humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death. That's the devil. And set free those who are held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. For he surely... Excuse me. For surely his concern is not for angels. Angels have no descent. They don't have an angelic Adam. God created them, and there's no family of angels. They're all their own race. There is one human race. Some of us might be browner than others. We're all one race. It's kind of irrelevant. We're family because we've been born in Adam and Jesus Christ becomes one of our family so that his death for us was actually connected to us if by faith we trust him. For surely he has no concern for angels. What's the implied point? But he, he does for us. Hebrews writing to the Jewish people says it specific to them, for he is concerned 
for Abraham's descendants. Why did Jesus Christ become human? It is not because we're so good. He wanted to be on Team Adam. It's because Team Adam was damned, condemned to hell, hopeless, without a Savior, and, and desperately needing one. He, through Mary, becomes one of Adam's descendants so that he might lead these captives to slavery of sin and death out of that into the freedom of God's sons. Saved from condemnation and sin. Not only that, but humans can die. And the unkillable Son of God became killable. The independent Son of God who could not be murdered, who no one could rob his joy, put himself in a position as a slave to be treated poorly and to be killable. Third, well, if you want an application for that, I tried to think of the simple textual one here. If you go back just a few verses, Jesus Christ was not self-seeking. Why did he join Team Adam? Because he was serving sinners, trying to and successfully accomplishing their ransom. Humility is his third focus here in this text. So again, in verse 8, he humbled himself. When Jesus Christ came down to humanity, he did not do probably as any one of us would have done. If I could pick any family in the world to be a part of, any family in the world, I would go with a rich one in a really good country, maybe even in modern times, so I could have electricity and air conditioning and good things like that. Jesus Christ was born in a humble family. He was born to a family that lived in Galilee, which is considered an uneducated, unrefined, backwater city, village, really. He was born in poverty, so much so that his family could not even afford housing. He was born among animals. He was not born in the palace. He was pursued his whole life by Herod, by those who were threatened by his claims. He had no personal power or no personal privilege to defend himself and to stand strong in society as a member to be respected. He was always a man poor. And in fact, that's one of the, the struggles the culture has with Jesus. How could we trust this guy? How could, I mean, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? The implied answer is, no, this guy is some hillbilly. He has never had an official education. He's not from some wealthy family. He is not someone we should respect. And that is precisely because as the son of God, he humbled himself so that he might save us. He humbled himself under the hand of God. He pursued the will of God. And he did not fight for his rights. In fact, those that want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven must be least. Those that want to be first must be. And isn't this the life of Jesus? Didn't he preach this to us not just with words but with his life? Why then do you and I look for the first place, the first seats, the best condition, the ministry that we enjoy the most? 
Why do we have such a hard time serving our children, listening to our parents? Why, when we get to a certain age, do we feel like we have done enough and it's time for someone else to serve so that we can actually just excuse our rest and laziness? Perhaps it is a cover for false humility or cover of false humility, covering up a pride. Fourth, he became obedient. Jesus freely and generously submits himself to another's will. And in particular, by having needs, he makes himself absolutely dependent upon the Father. And consider just simply the 40 days in the wilderness. Who sent Jesus into the wilderness? The Father does through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says he drove him into the wilderness. So as Jesus is in the wilderness and he's got no food, that weakness, that hunger, opens up a pathway of temptation the Son of God could not experience. The Son of God needs no food. Satan could have entered heaven's courts and said, hey, Son of God, you want some food? And it doesn't work. It doesn't land. There, there's no desire. There's no need. There's no hunger. There's no bodily desperation and dependence on nutrients by which the, the, the devil could grab a hold of that creaturely need and use it to twist Christ's will away from God. There was no handle on the Son of God for, for temptation to grab a hold and wrestle his will towards sin. But we have those handles everywhere, right? Like, like we can't live life without feeling the attraction, the pull, or the need to live life in a way that draws us towards sin. Jesus Christ, in humility, becomes human, therefore dependent, therefore temptable, because now he has needs. And this is why Hebrews says he learned obedience. The Son of God cannot suffer from anyone else's imposition. You and I can. And so can Jesus, who became human. He learned obedience when God says, go to the cross. When God says, act in such a way. When God sends him into the wilderness, God is putting on, that is the Father is putting upon Jesus an obligation to obey. And it was incredibly expensive. It cost him. Ultimately, it cost him his life. We're getting there, right? It's where, where the apostle leads us. And this is why Hebrews says he learned obedience. This is the very righteousness that is granted to us if we are God's. When the Bible says he became sin for us, the one who knew no sin, that we might become the, the what? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't miss that consideration. His obedience was righteous, that becomes ours in him. It is not merely that he took away from us our guilt and the penalty we deserve by dying for us. He became sin. That's the guilt taken away. But we also now become righteous. 
Because he obeyed. There was something creditable to us. Again, circling back, and I just want you to see how, how sweet the grace of God is here. God does not call his son to just do painful things just because he wants him to do painful things. Jesus Christ became human. If I can go back to Team Adam, so that the obedience he did as, as one of Adam's race could transfer to those in Adam's race. So that his death takes away humanity's sinful condition if they trust in him. But he also adds to any human his obedience if they trust in him. It's a double exchange. He gives me righteousness that is not mine, and he takes sin from me that is not his. So I want you to consider as another meditation here the contrast with Adam. Put yourself in the Garden of Eden. So I want you to, to watch with some theological eyes here the, the contrast between Adam and Jesus. Adam in pride desired to be like God. Jesus, who is already and eternally equal with God, chose to take on humanity. Adam chose to serve himself alone in the pursuit of something that he considered more glorious. Jesus Christ became a servant of all by giving up his glory. Adam chose not to trust God and disobeyed. Jesus chose to trust God according to 1 Peter 2, 24, and acted in obedience. Adam's desire to be exalted led him to condemnation and death for all. Jesus Christ desires to exalt God and it leads to eternal life for all who believe in him. Jesus Christ is a second Adam and he is glorious. Finally, we end with the costly death of Christ. He humbled himself, becomes a slave, he becomes human, he becomes obedient. And finally, he dies. Death, even the death of the cross, is how much he obeyed. Jesus says in John 10, no one takes this life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ obeyed his Father when he died on the cross, but Jesus Christ obeyed. I don't, know if that, I don't know if that connects, but he chose to die. He did not go as someone who had given up his will to the Father. He submitted his will and obeyed the Father to the point, to the extent at which he died the most horrific death that has ever been experienced by any human in all of eternity. In fact, if we were to put an equal sign and do a math formula, Jesus' one singular death will more than equal all the suffering of all the sinners for all the ages in all of eternity, they will never, ever equal the death of Jesus in suffering, ever. For you spend a million billion lifetimes in hell, you would be no clearer, or no closer, excuse me, to Redemption Day than you would be on the first day you suffered. Jesus Christ died in obedience to the Father. So living a life of humility, 
was costly. And just as we consider why we aren't humble, I think the answer is often because it's expensive. Go back to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Whether it becomes a part of reputation or rest. Whether it's a part of serving others or of suffering for the name of Christ. Often we hit our limit way too early. If we were to go back to our examples, and you have two people in conflict, maybe just reminding them that contention happens as a result of pride. So if a young woman or young man asks you, what should I do? Maybe we should just say, look to Jesus and be humble. Consider everyone else's interest is more important than your own. And call your significant other to the same. Your problem is pride. The problem is you're not like Jesus at all when it comes to conflict. The problem is your agenda, your desires have risen up within your soul and caused you to sin against your beloved. Repent. Maybe you should break up too. You think of the dad who's angry. He's angry because he's proud and not humble. Children are super expensive. They demand things of you. And they never stop. It's amazing. Is with unabashed, just like shameless requests, they will ask for more. Like you've given them all you got. Literally, like your wallet's empty, you're exhausted, you're spiritually dry, and they're like, more. An angry dad needs to humble himself. He's called to serve his family. There is no one more glorious than Jesus Christ, and yet he did not seek to be treated as a superior, but made himself a servant for all. Dads, if your home is a place of conflict, look in the mirror. Are you like Jesus? Perhaps you think, well, if I am like that, I'll be like a doormat. They'll never learn. I do not know anyone who's more effective at creating holy people than Jesus, and he's humble. Your pride, your arrogance, your argumentation, your return injuries, whether it's through words or any other things which you should not be doing, do not make people more holy. They make them less so. Perhaps you're afraid of some loss. Well, let me just tell you, you should be. This passage, March of Humility through Jesus Christ, ends with him dying. And the passage doesn't say, hey, be humble. It'll work out. It says, be humble. He died. This is not a fairy tale. Real humility requires a willingness to sacrifice, and that is super expensive. And sometimes we do not feel like we have the checkbook to write that check. And so we refuse. And in that moment, we are not like our Savior. We are not humble, nor are we godly. I know I'm a pastor, so you'll expect me to say something like this. And so I'm going to say something like this. 
I think as we measure the reasons we assemble on a Sunday morning, we often aren't doing nothing more than measuring with pride its value for us. I want to read verse 4 again to you. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you have three billion tasks to accomplish by Monday morning at 8 a.m., if encouraging others within your church family is not one of those tasks, you're doing it wrong. And sometimes we feel overwhelmed with life. That is not an excuse to reject Philippians 2.4. Look, everyone, not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. I do not think your three billion tasks comes close to the task list the Son of God had when he chose to become a human, was born and became a helpless baby. I do not know what it's like in terms of the, I'll say it, psychological humility to be a dependent baby who could not even lift his hand to his mouth to feed himself. I do not know what it was like for the Son of God to need his mom. I do not know how much it cost him to be mocked by kids in school. I do not know how much it hurt him to be betrayed by his sweet friend Peter. I do not understand how desperately his soul craved the affection of the Father when he was being tormented on the cross under the wrath of God. I do not know these things. But I know my God is humble. And I know it is super expensive to be humble. And Christ does not say some cheap, wishy-washy words of don't worry. He says, yeah, I know. I died. Come, be like me. And that is the mark of a church that stays unified when life is hard. That is what secures a home that is starting to fragment. It is what calms the angry dad's heart. It is the mind and heart of Christ that we must have. It is what will keep a fragmented couple moving towards restoration rather than divorce. It is what your children need to see in you, Mom. It is what our church needs to see in everyone from the age of 8 to 80 who claims to be a follower of Christ. Are you really a follower if you're not humble? On the other hand, if you love like God and say you love like God, you will be humble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its clarity on presenting Christ to us in his glory. He is God of gods. There is no one like him who stands with both a human nature and a divine nature. But he is our singular Savior. And so he has tasted of death that we might live. He has expressed his love and an affection for others that shows how deeply he's committed to serving the interests of others, particularly his Father, but the interests of all of those who call on his name at great expense to himself. Father, we just ask for the grace that you might strengthen our hearts, teach our minds and our souls 
so that we might move towards the humility of Christ within our own lives. Father, help us to encourage one another with the sweetness and the goodness and the glory of a Savior who died for us. Help us to worship and praise him in response to his incredible character. Lord, make Christ's character evident within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.